Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the Rising Edge DNO podcast and our second instalment of season 2. My name is Richard Kutcher and as ever, present and prepared to guide you through the wonderful world of DNO is Owen Dacey, Head of Claims at Rising Edge. Owen, how are you doing? Very well, thank you Richard. How are you? Yeah, yeah, not bad at all. Happy Tuesday morning on day of recording, of course. So we started season two with a great deep dive into the world of crypto and how the risks associated for corporates might manifest themselves for directors and officers. We're changing course now and embarking on an inside track with regards to the life and journey of a DNO claim. So we're starting with the litigation funder. That's right, Owen. That's right. Yep. Our guest is Jacqueline Young. Um, Jack is head of group litigation at um, a litigation funder called Augusta Ventures. Um, we'll let Jack introduce herself in a moment, but the reason we wanted to speak to a, to a funder, um, that we hear a lot about funding and its impact on the litigation environment in which we operate as, in which um, insurers operate in. But I'm not sure, you know, the industry is that well understood, so we wanted to speak to someone on the inside who could provide us with that kind of inside track and just provide us with another perspective. Provide us with some education about how it works and operates. And I think if we on the kind of defendant side of things understand that better, then then maybe it helps us with handling uh, the defense side of things. Yeah, no, really good idea and certainly a new world for me to, to hear all about. And, and Jacqueline does a great job uh, talking us through it. And she's gonna begin by telling us about Augusta and her role within the company. I joined Augusta Ventures uh, four years ago. Uh, before that, I was at Slater and Gordon, where I'd been head of group litigation for an awfully long time. While I was there, my remit was to do obviously group actions that were sort of consumer cases or human rights cases. And my swan song was the VW emissions case. Now, for any complex multi-party litigation, having funding is absolutely vital. You know, they can be costly and they can be long running cases and you have to have funding in place if you're going to, to make them work. Uh, and so much of my time in private practice was spent at the beginning of a case working out if it's viable legally, but also how to best structure it and what the strategy would be to bring the case to fruition. Uh, and that always involved uh, funding opportunities. So after I think it was a couple of decades in private practice. I thought it might be more fun to sit on the other side of the checkbook for a change. And that's when I joined Augusta. And my remit there is to build up a portfolio of group and class actions uh, across Europe. And so as a starting point for sort of all the beginners out there, can you explain the basics of litigation funding, what it is and, and how it kind of works in practice? Well, litigation funding um, is based on the premise that litigation is in fact an asset class in its own right. Now, traditionally, investors haven't looked at it in that way, but now recognise that the returns on a, on a litigation funding exercise aren't correlated to either economic or political stability. They don't you know, perform in the way that uh, the markets do. And this actually means that in a financial downturn or when there's market volatility, litigation normally increases. So it is a really sort of useful, viable investor tool but it's also absolutely vital for getting cases going and access to justice more generally. 
Now, how it works is a funder, a third party who has no relationship to the case itself, other than offering to fund the legal costs and the disbursements throughout the life of the case until it reaches a settlement or a conclusion at trial. Now, the funding is provided either to the claimants in the claim or it can be to the law firm who's running it. And it acts as a a non-recourse loan, which effectively means if the case is lost, it's the funder that's out of pocket. And whilst obviously the claimants and the law firm are going to be incredibly disappointed by the result, they're not on the hook financially because they've effectively transferred the risk of the litigation to the funder. By converse, if the case is successful, the funder is going to seek a funder's fee. Now, every single funding arrangement is bespoke. It's tailored to the case in hand. Um, And the idea is that the funding model has got to work to best serve all the stakeholders in a litigation piece. So terms of the funding might specify that the funder recovers their initial outlay, their investment, plus a money multiple on that investment, Or alternatively, they might seek to recover a percentage of the compensation that's recovered overall. Accepting, of course, that each case is kind of different and can be addressed individually. What kind of multiples are typical here and what kind of percentages might might be typical? Is there a typical range? Sort of rule of thumb of funding is that, you know, you're looking at if you're if you're working on the basis of percentage of, of damages, it can be anything from 20% up to 45, 50%. Um, and it completely depends upon the case. I certainly as a funder, you know, I, I do quite a lot of international human rights cases, which I thoroughly enjoy. And in those sort of cases, you're very mindful of what you're seeking to achieve, which is a result, an access to justice provision and a result for people who really need it. It would be totally uh, inequitable or wrong to overcharge a funding fee in such circumstances. You know, we, we, we've also we've got a real mind to ESG litigation. And again, you have to tailor what, you know, what the case type is like and what you're trying to achieve. Obviously, it's a commercial enterprise, but it's got to be sensible. And again, with multiples, multiples, you know, the, you, the traditional rule of thumb that was a multiple of three or four was your starting point. And that multiple can escalate up to, you know, 10, 11, who knows what. But it, it's dependent upon your risk assessment of the case. It all depends upon the factual matrix and how you how risky you view the investment overall. And the risk can obviously be quantified in a million different ways. It could be that, that you know, the damages that you're hoping to recover, it'll be difficult to get, hit the high level. Um, or there's, there's a discrepancy about the evidence, you know. Or in my cases, which are group matters, a book build is crucial. You know, you sometimes have to get to a critical mass to make a funding model work. And so it's, it's those sort of issues which are really key in assessing the risk of the case and setting the funding model. So those are the basics of, of what it is and how it works. Can you walk us through uh, the process a bit more? So starting with how the claims come to you, how, who do they come via? And then how do you decide whether or not you're going to back a case? So what, what's, the tip, what's the kind of typical process there? And uh, one step on from that, how, once you agree to back a case, what's, what's your involvement thereafter? Where cases come from, the most common route is for a law firm to come and request funding. And they come saying, look, we've been looking at this case. We think it's, you know, it's good. This is the budget. This is what we think we need to get it to a successful result. But increasingly, we get approached by claimants directly or experts, counsel. And I think 
once you know that you're not alone with a particular legal problem and that there might be a larger group, I think people automatically realise or increasingly realise that it's impossible to launch an action and get an action going unless there's a funding support. Um, there's too many moving pieces, there's too much to do. And so quite often I'm, I'm approached by individuals who just pop out of the blue as some sort of idea. And I'm very happy to work those cases up, look at them. And, you know, obviously I'm a, a qualified lawyer and sadly quite long in the tooth. So, you know, I would know if something is going to work or not. And the beauty of that is then you can think, right, what law firm has got the specialist skills that will particularly apply to this case? Who has got capacity to deal with this? You know, who who could I approach and say, look, I'd like to fund this, you know, could you run it? So that's a nice way of cases originating, but the most common route is for us to be approached by a law firm. So once we've got a case, the first thing we do is look at it and it's a two-prong approach. So the first one is legal merits. As we've said, it's the litigation itself, which is an asset. It's only an asset if we win. So we need to be assured that the case that's coming to us is going to be legally and factually match fit. You know, we want we want to be able to say we think this case has got a minimum of 60% prospects of success. So then the second you know, second level of examination is the economics. The case has got to be capable of being supported by a funding model. And this requires really careful analysis of the damages that you're going to hope to recover, and also the budget, the cost of getting to that point. So a funder will look at the economics and take a really realistic and possibly conservative view of quantum. So lawyers can sometimes present really great cases saying, you know, the damages will be this, but we also think there's special damages and, you know, loss of profits and more creative approach to what the recovery might be. Often we will ignore or heavily discount those sort of aspects of damages because we want to know that the model will work on a base case. That, you know, worst case scenario, what, how badly could the case go and even on those circumstances, can we make the model work? So that's sort of, you know, we need the model to be incredibly flexible and responsive. So it will react to the dynamics of a case. You know, and that will ensure that the funds are released to lawyers when they actually need it. And it will also mean that you're constantly reviewing the overall risk assessment um, and being mindful of when a case might have obvious settlement dynamic points or, you know, that you're actually working with the team to ensure that resources are there when they're required. And a very basic rule of thumb, uh, and it is a basic rule of thumb because I would like to stress that every funding model is particular to the case, but if you're trying to figure out whether a case is capable of being supported by a funding model, you can look at the sort of budget or the costs to damages ratio of being about one to 10. So if your budget's a million quid, your damages have got to be a minimum of 10 million pounds. And that's not to, you know, that is to ensure that the lawyers are paid. Well, primarily the starting point is to ensure that the claimants are appropriately compensated for their case. And that then there's sufficient money in the pot to meet the lawyers, the insurers, the funders and everybody else who's got a stake. It's interesting to me that that ratio, obviously, it suggests that the types of cases that might be more appropriate for funding, I'm not saying every case, but most of the cases, like larger quantum, how often do you, are you able to kind of, um, on those larger claims, get all of the part, the, the other parties, so the defendants, into an early settlement discussion? Do you, do you ever get much success there? I just think because I've seen it, I've seen it attempted and then never, never really happened. But do, do, does that happen, that really early stage kind of settlement before before you're in proceedings? 
Uh, rarely, if I'm honest. Yeah. Um, because I suppose the, the thing, particularly in my cases, because they're group cases, often, you know, you've got the sort of floodgates argument. You think if, if you give in, if you sort of say, oh, mm. this looks ugly and nasty, we're going to give in immediately, you are facing a tsunami of litigation. You know, you, the, the damages will be so enormous. But I think long gone are the days where defendant, defendant law firms would just sort of fire back a you know, off you jog letter in response to a letter of claim, because particularly in group cases, costs escalate very quickly at the start. You know, if, you, if you're committed to your case, you've got to start possibly book building. You know, you've got to have media campaign plans to attract people to come to the group. You might want to get an expert on board really early. Expert reports can be extremely costly. It's foolish, I think. And I think it's thankfully a an old tradition, which I don't think lives on, is, you know, the idea that you don't take it seriously at the start. And I think in the UK, for example, the mechanism to bring group cases to, to the court is the GLO, the Group Litigation Order. There's always resistance to get a GLO in place, or usually. Once the GLO is in place, that gives, you know, that's a certain discussion point for settlement. You know, pre-disclosure, you know, every case has its own sort of inflection points. Um, but it, it isn't often, I think, that sort of big, complex, high-value litigation settles, uh, you know, from the get-go. So you've done your assessment and it's it's looking legally and economically sound. Then what, what happens next? Basically, we would present it to our investment committee, a legally match fit case, but one which is a great investment opportunity. And quite a lot of work goes in prior to an investment committee. I think sometimes lawyers are surprised that funders don't say, oh, yeah, that sounds interesting and, and whip their checkbook out immediately. We do actually do quite a lot of due diligence to make sure that the investment fits with our investment parameters and is the right thing for us. And then once the investment is made, obviously with the parties, you'll have agreed a funding model and you'll have agreed how you want to draw down your cash at what stages. You know, It's all tailored to make it as sensible and easy for the lawyers involved. Once the investment's made, Augusta sits with the case. We kind of keep track of it. Funders are actually forbidden from controlling any litigation, and nor do they want to, but we do actually need to be abreast of all key case developments to ensure that we are there to support the case and get it to a positive outcome. Now, we all set off on big cases thinking it's going to be great and that, you know, it's all going to go according to plan. But as we know, the road to litigation never runs true. And so if we are kept uh, up to date of key developments and decisions as a case goes along, we are ready to respond swiftly to any strategic shifts that might require a budget variation, for example. So it's always useful to remember that the, the funder and the claimant and the law firm, they are all perfectly aligned in what they want, which is a swift, positive result um, as efficiently as possible. Coming back to that investment committee, who's on there? Is it? Is it presume it would just be senior people within the business? Yes. And we have a, a separate committee uh, outside the actual workings of Augusta who are all people who are appropriately qualified to be able to make legally sound investment decisions. What are the thresholds in terms of whether or not you take on a case? And I'm thinking it prospects value recovery. And do you, is insurance ever a factor in this? Obviously, we come at it from an insurance angle. Yes. What are the things that put you off? What are the red flags to you, the ones, things that put you off a case? And then what are the things you see and think, gosh, green, green flag, you know, this is, a, this is a good one. We're going to go ahead with it. Perfect. Okay. Well, in terms of what we would fund in mon monetary terms, as I alluded to before, when we get a case opportunity, we really do 
dig deep and look into it and see that you know all the all the aspects we want to, to see met are so the diligence is is something we take seriously um, and on that basis we have a threshold that we only provide funding of over five million pounds on each case as you recall I sort of suggested a broad rule of thumb would be funding to a budget to damages ratio of one to 10. So basically, we were looking at case quantums of a, a, a sort of 50 million would be about right. Mm-hmm. In respect of uh, insurance, ATE, uh, after the event insurance, plays a vital part to any funding package. So it's imperative that we ensure a claimant has adverse cost protection. But similarly, funders can be held liable for the losing party's costs. Traditionally, that liability was capped at the amount that a funder invested in a claim. It was called the Arkin cap. But now the court has discretion to make a cost order against a funder on the basis of factors that are specific to a particular case. Now, that means that Augusta sees it as essential that there's a policy of ATE there to cover the entirety of the adverse cost risk from the get-go. And that's irrespective of how much funding we provide. So, you know, ATE is crucial uh, and is in place from the start. Turning to red flags to funding, um, the old adage that time is money completely rings true from a funding perspective. If a case looks like it's going to run long, and that's you know over six years, including appeals, this can make the case less appealing from an inv- uh, a funder perspective. You know, the longer the money's out, the harder it's having to work. Another red flag would be the mindset of of the claimant. Com- you know, it's commercial funding. It is aiming to get a good result that compensates a claimant appropriately. An investment can be jeopardised by a claimant not having reasonable expectations in respect of settlement. There's been a lot of chat about activist claimants. Now, if a victory in their eyes is shining the light on inappropriate behaviour or having their day in court... You know, that can be an impediment to funding because funding is seeking to be pragmatic, is seeking to get to a resolution that has a financial end. The same thing runs with family, family disputes. You know, emotions can run high and can get in the way of seeing a path to a commercial settlement. Another red flag would be novelty which is unusual because uh, lawyers love to be creative and are thrilled at finding ways to get round a difficult, pesky legal problem. But th- this path less travelled holds significantly less appeal to a funder because novelty obviously adds uncertainty into a case and that therefore increases the risk profile for the investment. Uh, another red flag is forum and enforcement. Augusta is a global funder. We fund in you know almost every jurisdiction, but some locations are friendlier, put it that way, friendlier than others. And also, we need to have a clear route to enforcement. There's no point. You know, the game's got to be worth the candle. There's no point pursuing it if we're not going to get a recovery at the end. Counterpart financial position and asset location. You know, that's a that's a standard in any sort of litigation approach. You know, who are you suing? Are they good for it? And where are they based? Where's their assets based? Uh, and the final red flag would be stale cases, cases that have been knocking around that you've heard discussed that might have been presented to you by different law firms. If no one's been able to get something to, to fly, they haven't got it going, it's for a reason. There's some possibly insurmountable problem or difficulties. That would raise a red flag. I mean, I'm always open to someone coming up with a, a clever way to get to, to, to get something going, but stale cases generally are stale for a reason. 
So then turning to your green flags, I've obviously referred to the two-prong approach. We want to know that the legal merits are good and that the economics are there. That sounds really simple, but is so rarely achieved. If someone comes to me and presents me with a case opportunity and I've got a, a case plan that sets out the legal and factual matrix of the case, they don't attempt to conceal or downplay any risks or uncertainties. And every case has points that people are uncertain about or worried about or the weak spots. Don't hide them. Own them. Say, this is what the case is. This is how it's going to work. This is where we're weak. This is what we want to do. If it's supported by a council's opinion, all the better. You know, saying that, yes, the the legal and factual matrix works. If there's clear indications as to what the quantum is, brilliant. And then it's accompanied by a budget. So who's doing what, when, and at what cost? That's at the heart of it. And that's to do a proper budget, it's got to have, you know got to have a good degree of strategic thought. How is this case going to run? Where where are we going to? You know, how are we going to pursue it? How much is it going to cost? Who's doing it? If you get a costed phased budget and case plan that's done properly, you have an immediate snapshot as to how it's going to go, and then the model, which as I've said, has got to be flexible to those particular case aspects. The model comes easily. You can see when there might be settlement issues. You can see, oh, the problem there is, you know, if they only get X number of claimants on board, we've got to increase the damages, you know, as in the the, the quantum has got to be increased to make up for a shortfall on on the book build. You know, whatever it might, I mean, that's particularly to group. Forgive me for constantly reverting to group, but it is my my specialism. It's like making a cake. If you're given the right ingredients and the right quantity, it's, it's a doddle. If you're not, you have to, it takes longer and it's more difficult to achieve. So if I get a nice set of papers where someone's clearly thought about what they're doing, can, clearly conveys not just the legal case, but the strategy and the costs, that's gets me very happy. Well, I can certainly relate to the cake point. I mean, I'm very aware that when you put in the wrong measurements, you get a really, you'll get a flat cake or a stodgy cake. So that, that I, could... I don't, there's a lawyer in the world that enjoys doing a budget. I certainly never did. In no. Not a fun experience, but if you crack it from the get-go, if you can really sit and think about it, crack it, you're giving, you're giving the funder the best opportunity mm-hmm. to provide something that is going to work better for you. So moving on, we've got a, just one, we're a DNA podcast, so we've got one a bit more of a DNA related question. Do you have many cases that you fund that involved individual defendants? And and are there any trends in that area? You know, is that because we always wonder, is there more, or we think there's more focus now looking on individuals and, and bringing them in as opposed to the entity? Okay, well, the risk for the funder when considering a claim against individual defendants is whether they have assets sufficient to satisfy any judgment or award. If they do have assets, have they put them out of reach? Have they put them in some complicated offshore or trust arrangement? Um, Obviously, it's key for a funding agreement to work for there to be money at the end of the rainbow. The other thing is uh, the commerciality again funders are aware that individuals are more likely to take a personal approach to litigation which might make them more resistant to uh, settlement the other thing being there might be an expectation that an individual has dno cover but without knowing the level of indemnity and whether there are any coverage issues a funder can be cautious about approaching that individual for enforcement risks so it's something we look at carefully and it's from that sort of prism that we look at it. But ultimately, the lawyer 
is presenting the case to the funder. It's the lawyer saying, this is the strategy, this is how we want to go about it. And a lawyer may well have very legitimate, sensible reasons for wanting to include an individual and not just an entity. You know, reputation, putting reputational pressure on someone which might bring settlement to bear or disclosure, a party to the action, you know, an individual being a party to the action might be able to provide very necessary uh, documents which will be key to unlocking the case. Um, so next on my on my uh, things that I'm interested in asking you about is regulation. Yeah. Um, this is where everyone falls asleep. You shouldn't fall asleep yet because this is, <laughs> this is interesting. This is a, the, so the market in the UK is it's self-regulated, isn't it, via the Association of, of Litigation Funders? And there is a voluntary code of conduct, um, which is mandatory for, for people wanting to join. There is some commentary out there around probably from insurance companies um, saying um, the industry needs more scrutiny. It needs to be independently regulated. What's your view on all that? If it ain't broke, don't fix it, I think. sums up what I think. I mean, let's, let's you, you quite rightly said we, have, we are self-regulated through the Association of Litigation Funders, ALF, and we have a voluntary code of conduct, which was developed by the Ministry of Justice. So it it's been looked at, it's match fit for what we're doing. And we've also had the government review whether we should be regulated, um, whether they should put in regulations to protect the consumer. But they reached the decision that the market is at a relatively nascent stage or early development stage, and that they hadn't been made aware of any specific concerns about the activity activities of litigation funders. So they were satisfied that the self-regulation was working. But there's something else to, to bear in mind that most investment managers at third-party litigation funders are qualified solicitors. So they are subject to the regulations of the Solicitors Regulation Authority, which would sanction them for any form of questionable conduct. We've also got the FCA who have the remit to engage if a funder is doing, you know, charging excessively high rates or being unreasonable in their handling or management of consumers or misrepresenting what the fund is going to be. So those checks and balances exist in the background. And the other thing is we're very lucky that we've got a really um, empowered bench. You know, the court has demonstrated that it's totally willing, happy and able to exercise case management powers if they find a funding issue that they don't like. I referred to the Arkin cap earlier. Um, you know, that was the Court of Appeals stepping in and saying, mm, you know, the Arkin cap isn't finite. We've still got the right to say we don't actually like how that's looking in relation to this particular case. So in summary, so far so good. We're doing all right with self-regulation and it doesn't look like it's going to be on the horizon. And I'm sorry to say the inevitable COVID-19 question next. Um, but I think, again, it's it's an interesting one because obviously there was there was lots of talk of there being um, the floodgates opening litigation after COVID. How do you how do you see it impacting um, the litigation funding industry in the future? I likewise I watched with interest the sort of you know it's going to be litigation boom and 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 it was a lot of talk about group cases arising out of the, the pandemic. But I actually haven't seen that come to bear. I'm not going to say it isn't yet, you know, it won't come to bear, but it hasn't yet. And I think a lot of that is, you know, we did have guidelines issued from the Cabinet Office in May 2020, sort of saying to everybody, ease yourselves, you know, try and find conciliatory ways of working your way through what is a very challenging, difficult and unprecedented, I hate to say that, unprecedented event. You know, everyone's saying, look, negotiate, mediate, don't necessarily you know, crack out a claim, claim form. It's not necessarily the right way to go. But I also think it's incredibly difficult 
to map your way through litigation when you're in the middle of the pandemic? You know, I'm tentatively saying, you know, we're nearing the end at the end, you know, I don't want to speak too soon. But during during the pandemic, it was quite difficult to sort of say, did organisations, businesses, governments, did they behave appropriately? You know, were they responding to the pandemic in the right way? I think hindsight is a, a useful thing when you're looking at it from that perspective. It was a voyage of discovery for everybody. So I don't think that the disputes actually came to bear. However, I'm wondering now whether at the end of sort of government assistance to businesses and employees, people are trying to get themselves back going, make up, you know, recovery for losses they've had. And certainly we started to see this in the construction space. Construction projects were really impacted by COVID, obviously. And now we're starting to see disputes making their way to formal dispute stage following the project completion. Um, so I anticipate that there might be an increase in arbitration and litigation in this area in, in the coming years. That's interesting on construction because I'm thinking, I immediately thought, oh, that's an interesting one for supply chain, inflation, yeah, people doing things under fixed cost contracts. So yeah, you could see some more activity there. Finally, looking further outside the UK, so so what do you think, you know, what does the future look like um, for funding across the globe? Do you see it kind of growing more and, and where do you expect that growth to be in terms of sort of the types of litigation and, and also geographically? Litigation funding is undoubtedly a growth industry. We're seeing more funders enter the market, uh, specialist litigation funders, but also hedge funds, you know, large organisations. It's, it's you know, the recognition that litigation is a valuable asset that doesn't follow sort of market trends more generally, I think, makes it attractive. I think the certain drivers to this, and it's obviously it's becoming better understood from the perspective of lawyers and claimants, um, you know, the existence of litigation funding, the fact that it can can be really helpful to either for access to justice, but also to transfer the risk. And that brings in the corporates as well. You know, people used to always think litigation funding was just if you couldn't afford to bring the case yourself. But in fact, it's a really useful team uh, tool for corporates to say, look, you know, you've got a war chest, you can pay your litigation quite happily, but do you want to? Wouldn't you rather use that money for something else? Get litigation off your, you know, your balance books. This, this is the way to do it and transfer the risk of litigation to someone else. Obviously, with the litigation funding market maturing as it has, so has the investor base. So we've got engagement from banks and hedge funds, and that is adding stimulus to the market. And obviously, with greater industry understanding and investment, it gives the funders the ability to offer a broader range of solutions. Um, So we can look to broader types of disputes to fund and the funding models can incorporate different things like portfolio arrangements for corporates or law firms where, you know, all their cases are dealt with in, in one sort of pool, if you like, which has cost benefits. We can provide working capital support to law firms. So you're actually funding the law firm to keep the cases going, their portfolio of cases going. Um, So I just think as it develops, we've got more tools in our toolbox to to assist. In terms of growth opportunities, growth opportunities, particularly in group, are key because it's vital. Um, in Europe, we have been really scuppered by the fact that not every member state has a regime for group class actions. You know, in some countries, there is no mechanism at all to do anything other than bring a single case. And I think we've had a recent spate of cases over the last decade, which have really shone a light on the fact that your access to justice really depends upon where you live. For example, the Dieselgate cases, the VW case, 
shows that you know you can't always get compensation in the right way and i think that's been taken on board because we now have the european union's directive on collective redress coming in later this year obviously we're not a member state anymore but i won't say any more about that but it means that europe for the first time will in fact have a unified approach to collective redress and that's very exciting it's very exciting for mass consumer claims meaning that everyone has got an equal level playing field. And key locations for international arbitrations are obviously the Middle East, Singapore and Hong Kong. In terms of challenges, competition, you know, as I said, as litigation funding is beginning to be increasingly recognised as a growth area, the market's expanding, so there's greater competition. We've even seen law firms setting up their own funding arms to better meet the needs of their clients. There's also the risk of regulation. We've touched on that. Australia now is subject to applying for a license on cases for funding. And that's caused, you know, that's sort of had a, a chilling effect on what funding can do in Australia. As I said, I don't think we are at risk of being regulated currently, but it's always something you need to keep an eye out for. Other challenges are jurisdictional variants. Funding is not actually legal in every jurisdiction um, or is applied in a very different way. So sometimes it's a challenge to work your way through sort of domestic legal provisions to ensure that what you're doing is, is correct. And again, some countries just don't have any way to allow us to fund them. And then understanding. You know, litigation funding is still a relatively new offering, and I'm not sure it's always understood either by members of the legal industry or by corporates. So I think it is getting better all the time because it's become more widely used, but there's still there's still a learning piece there, I think. Final question I had was really, like you say, there's people are still kind of developing their understanding of funding. There's probably lots of people out there that probably still don't fully understand it. So so it's great we're talking about it. What are the kind of common misconceptions about funding that, that you could put to bed? And is there anything else you could kind of share about the inner workings that you of a funder that you think would be useful to kind of share with outsiders? One misconception uh, would be that funders aren't au fait with the legal case being presented to them by lawyers. All investment managers at Augusta are qualified lawyers or financial professionals. So we are the only funder, I think, that works in specialist teams. So I only look at group litigation. My colleagues will only look at competition, construction, arbitration, whatever. So we do know what we're looking for in a case, and we would hopefully know the right questions to ask. And the idea is that we can get under the hood of the case quickly, recognise the strengths and weaknesses. So the diligence process can be rigorous. And sometimes lawyers are quite surprised that we're not just handing over the money within sort of days of being approached. Another thing is timing. The lament that funding takes too long is a common one, but I would suggest gently that it's something of a misnomer. We always want to say no quickly. If the case isn't for us, we don't want to spend time and effort with it. You know, everyone is best served by a, a swift rejection. I talked earlier about how, you know, in an ideal world, you're presented with an opportunity that makes sense, is comprehensive, and it covers law, strategy, fact, and, and costs. If that's provided to me, you know, I can turn a funding application around pretty quick. So the length of time entirely depends upon the trade of information and documents between the law firm and the funder. Um, but I think we can be pretty quick when required. And I suppose the last thing is that to point out that funders don't want to take over the litigation. Funders don't want to control the litigation. They're not allowed to, but they don't want to. 
you know, in an ideal world, you find a great case that excites you. You think it's a good investment. You want to do it. You find a law firm you like working with. You want to get the case funded and then you want it to fly. You know, you want it to keep going, get to the end result and being kept abreast of the key developments is more for the benefit of the law firm to ensure we're ready to, to jump in any direction if the case goes slightly off piste. But we don't want to get involved in the actual legals of it. We want, we just want it to do well. So I think those are the, probably the main misconceptions. Okay, so that was really interesting from Jacqueline Young of Augusta Ventures, all about litigation funding. I mean, I thought that was very comprehensive and, and plenty for listeners and, and for ourselves to get stuck into. So what were your key takeaways from it? Yeah, so first thing that struck me, and I mentioned this to Jack following following our conversation sort of off air, but just the amount of parallels that you can draw between some of the processes that they have in place and those that insurers have in place, you know, regarding how they review, assess claims, they're obviously very meticulous about it, as insurers are. And then funding committee, very similar to reserving committees, also what they require from lawyers in terms of how they present and report information and advice. More similar than I probably realised previously. Second thing was just about the potential growth of this industry. It is obviously, as Jack said, it's a growth industry and it's interesting for us as DNO insurers that, that Jack highlighted the EU as a potential growth area as member states uh, bring in laws of, of collective redress. So that's that's really something to keep a close eye on. And then just setting the current scene, we have, what do we have? We have geopolitical instability, inflation, cost of living crisis, kind of a resetting of, of the stock market, supply chain issues, recessionary environment. Yeah, it's, yeah. All, <laughs> it's all there, right, across many, across many economies. And we know litigation is counter-cyclical, we know COVID was a kind of unprecedented environment that existed, so it's sort of an outlier. But perhaps now with this environment, and I don't want to be a doomsayer again, but can expect maybe more growth in this industry as as a litigation environment does, there is an uptick again. And you have also investors looking for gains in an environment where kind of traditional investment strategies look kind of challenging right now, depending on what kind of investor you are. And then finally, it was good just to get an understanding of the shift, if you like, from many years ago, funding being viewed as kind of a last resort when you just don't have the money or resources to, to bring the claim. The switch from that to being a more proactive solution for businesses. So even businesses that are well capitalized have good amounts of cash. The, the fund is saying we can remove that cost from your balance sheet and go, go and use that for something else. And here's a solution that pays pays for this problem you've got. And it also removes the downside of loser paying at the same time. So that's a dynamic mix and it's an interesting shift. And then finally, ESG, we didn't actually get onto it. And I, that's my fault. I kind of forgot to go, go further inside. Jack mentioned the ESG and that they were funding some ESG related cases. So I'm really interested in that too. Uh, we didn't delve into it, but maybe maybe we can come back to that one on a later podcast. Yeah, I'm sure we'll be talking about ESG again in the future. I'm sure litigation funding will come up in the future, so maybe we can combine those two in some way in a, in a future episode. Well, that, that was brilliant, Owen, and, and it really is all we have time for for this week's episode. But we will be back on the 10th of April with the broker's perspective. Next up, when it comes to a DNO claim, we've got Sarah Coots from Marsh. In the meantime, if you like what you heard and want to make sure you are notified of every new episode and it is downloaded straight to your device, then do make sure you're subscribed or following us on any podcast app just search for rising edge dno podcast on apple podcast spotify Castbox, or wherever
wherever you get your podcasts from but until then owen stay well thanks richard see you next time take care 